0: Well, if you've been with us for a while now, for the last several weeks, we've been in this new expositional series in the book of First Thessalonians, in subtitled "Living for Today in Light of Tomorrow." In other words, what is still to come in God's plan should influence, should make a huge difference in the way you and I live now, because things are hard, things are difficult the Thessalonians were in a time of difficulty and affliction and persecution and so were many other churches of that time and so are many in our time and it may be coming in our time for us but still we can have hope because of what God has guaranteed and will do in his son and when he comes to make all things again and the Thessalonians. Paul is going to teach a lot about that second coming in this book and in the second book as well. We last week looked at the importance of, two weeks ago, God's word and how important God's word is. It is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet God's word also tells us that suffering and affliction will be part of our lives. And we're going to see how that is the backdrop of when Paul, and what he's saying in our scripture reading this morning, how that is framing and his concern for his beloved Thessalonian believers in Christ, his brothers and sisters that have followed Jesus with him. And so our scripture reading, it picks up at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, In beginning at verse 17, and we'll be reading through verse 5 of chapter 3. And again, I remind you, this is not the word of men, but the word of the true and living God. Hear it with appreciation. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, Not in heart. We endeavored to more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow The tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will remain forever. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon him once again. Father, Lord, will you now, having given us the Holy Spirit, oh, heavenly dove, would you do your work and revealing your truth to us. Those, all those things that Jesus said that he would do and reveal to us when he came. Father, we thank you that he's come. That we're this side of Pentecost and of the cross. But Father, we need a fresh outpouring of the spirit. We need to be given ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, humility and meekness to receive the engrafted word. Father, so that it may yield in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And we pray and ask for this help in Jesus' name. We would hear him and see him only. Amen. Not long after Paul and his co-workers planted this fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica in the province of Macedonia, northern Greece, on his second missionary journey. But no sooner had he gotten there and begun to establish the church and begin to build the church and teach Sunday after Sunday, than he had to flee for his life. He had to get out of Dodge, and I mean quickly, because there was this consortium of gospel opposition made up of Jews, made up of fellow countrymen, Romans, that had been stirred up against Paul and his fellow workers and their teaching. And Paul literally had to escape in the middle of the night for his life. The brothers would not let him stay. It would have meant death for sure. Paul vividly, Luke recounts this in And chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And Paul mentions that right at the beginning of the scripture that I just read. I'm going to touch on again in a moment. From there they went to Berea. And again taught the word of God there. And ultimately ended up in Athens. And it was from there that Paul decided finally he could stand it no longer. He couldn't stop thinking about the beloved Thessalonian Christians. These fledglings in Christ and yet they were so, in some senses, so mature. This, Paul had nothing bad to say about the Thessalonians and the Philippians. He had a lot of correction for a lot of the other churches. But this church was, in some ways, the apple of his eye. And yet he was concerned about the opposition that they were now facing. Where he had been facing, but now they were in, as it were, the bullseye. The target was on their back. He was concerned that opposition that cast him out might ultimately overwhelm and overcome this new outpost of the kingdom called the church of God and of the Thessalonians. And so Paul had told them, he had said, look, I'm telling you, he'd already told them. Remember last week, he said suffering is part of the deal in following Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you should not expect to not have afflictions. He had told them that suffering afflictions was necessary, but he was also anxious. He was concerned about them and wondering whether or not they were going to be able to hold on and hold out against this onslaught of persecution and affliction. And so Paul finally, he couldn't get them out of his mind. They were forever, as he said in that first verse, in his heart. But he couldn't get them out of his mind and he couldn't stand it no longer. And so he's finally got to do something. And our outline today is what he did. Today we're going to look at three things that Paul did and understand about him and how he viewed the Thessalonians and how he loved them. First of all, we're going to see Paul's passion for them. Secondly, we're going to look at Paul's plan for them. And then we're going to finally see Paul's present to them. So we got a passion that he has for them, a plan he's trying to work, but he has a problem with that as we're going to see. And then his alternative plan that sends them someone very special okay let's dig into that this morning Paul's passion for them that's found basically in verse 17 and you also can see it in verses 19 and 20 and even in a couple of expressions in the first verse of chapter 3 and in the fifth verse you can see where again he just says I, I can't I can't stand this I've, I've got to do something he's got such passion for them the thought of their afflictions As Paul was reflecting on what was going on, he couldn't see, he was blind, he didn't have intel, he didn't have his his guys that he could get feedback from, he was wondering what was going on. And the thought of their afflictions moved his affections. They moved his heart. They moved his emotional love for them. The passion of Paul's words are inescapable in this text. Look again at verse 17 and how he starts out. He says, but since... We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. You see, Paul here is saying, look, I've tried to get back to you several times. I keep trying, and and yet it's not happening. It's not working. Yes, he was absent from them physically, but not emotionally. He was tied to them. He was tethered to them in the bonds of love. To describe the feelings that he uses. He uses a familial uh, language here. He uses family language of bonds, of father and mother. He's already referred to himself as a father to them. He's already referred to himself earlier as a mother. And now he uses a, a, a metaphor or a word picture that has the idea of the separation of a Mother from her child or a child from its mother can go both ways. That's when he says that torn apart or torn away from you. He said, that's what it feels like. That you are so precious to me. I care for you so much. It's like a mother who's had her baby stolen, ripped out of her arms, and then he calls them brothers, which is a, a generic way of referring to the brothers and sisters in Christ there in Thessalonians. They are family to him. They're a spiritual family. He loves them deeply. Paul is giving them a glimpse of his own heart. He gave it to the Philippians in Philippians 1, seven. He said, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul is saying the same thing about the Thessalonians here. And then... Paul goes on. He, he talks about his deeply rooted love. It's the same kind of love that he expressed over in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That's what Paul was doing. He loved the Thessalonians. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's using this family language. He's talking about, yes, you're not with me, but I haven't forgotten you. You are burned into my heart. I have a passion and love for you, and I can't stand not seeing you. And so Paul had been trying to get back to them. He'd been trying to get back, but for whatever reason, it wasn't happening. He didn't just feel love for them though. They were linked to his destiny. Do you realize that? The Thessalonians were going to be involved in Paul's ultimate destination. Where he was going to end up, look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Before our Lord Jesus at his coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy you're talking about being other oriented you're talking about being out of our own self little preoccupied worlds that we live in so comfortably and so easily paul is got a mindful of somebody else just like jesus that's who he learned it from who was mindful of others and paul is not thinking about his reward his blessing at the day of christ at the revelation of christ He's thinking about who he's going to have with him. That's who he's glorying in. That's who he's prizing. Paul is saying that at the second coming, his most esteemed prize in his trophy case is going to be the Thessalonian brothers and sisters. That's what he's looking forward to so much. He had similar sentiments regarding the believers in Philippi, as you've already heard. Listen, listen to this. He said, therefore, my brothers to the Philippians, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, there's that same language. He called them his joy and a crown. He called the Thessalonians his joy and crown. Paul is saying that his greatest blessing will be when Jesus comes back. He is saying, my greatest joy and blessing will be able to present these believing brothers and sisters from Thessalonica to Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's gonna, he can't wait to do that. That's going to be heaven to him. That's going to be glory to him, to be able to introduce them to Jesus and say, Jesus, these guys and these girls, these men and these women, these boys and girls, they're with me. I'd like to introduce you to them. I love them. They're special to me. Now, that's cool. But you know what's even cooler still by far? That's amazing. But you know what's going to be more amazing? It's on that day, on the day in which Christ returns it 's going to be Jesus that presents Paul and the Thessalonians and you and me to his Father. You say, Where do you get that, Joe? Try looking up hebrews two thirteen It says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling prophecy. He is saying, Father, look at them. The ones you've given me, the ones that you sent me to redeem and save, they're all here and not a one of them is lost. I want to present them to you because I have caused their sins to be covered and their robes have been dipped in blood and they are now radiant white and spotless and blameless before you, Father. I want to introduce them. God, they're with me. Therefore, now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, folks, we got to take the long view. Suffering will be a part of our world. If it's not now, it's coming and it will be. It either has or will or both. And in those times, it's not easy to see way out ahead. But we've got to take the long view. And that's what Paul is trying to say. That's why he's going to talk about the second coming so much. Is because he's saying, he's already referenced it in this verse, at the second coming, you need to hold on and hold out because... Jesus one day is going to present you to his father and me. And I'm going to be able to introduce you and he's going to introduce us all to the father. Hold on to that. No matter what happens in this world, you cannot have that taken from you. Christians, he's saying that to you today, Christian, believer in Christ. He's saying that to me. And he'll be saying more about that as we go on further in the book. Now, in verse 18, we run into something. Paul has a plan. What's the plan? To get back and check on them firsthand himself. He wants to see them, the ones he loves. They're in his heart, but he wants to put his eyes on them and touch them and hug them. He had a clear plan. But despite all his impassioned intent, Paul was hindered. Going back to Thessalonica, look at verse 18. Because we wanted to come to you, I... Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. That word hindered it conveys the idea of either breaking up and piling up or of placing obstacles in the way. Whether they were potholes or whether they were barriers, Satan was involved in obstructing the way to the Thessalonians. Who's doing this obstructing work according to Paul? Well, here he says it's the one who is both obstructor in 2.17 and also tempter in five, verse 3, five that we read. And he has a name and his name is Satan or sometimes referred to as the Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He has other names, the devil, Lucifer. You see, Satan is the active enemy of God's purposes and his people. And here Paul sees his malevolent fingerprints all over this situation, these circumstances. He knows there really is an evil one, and he's powerful. And he opposes the purposes and people of God. But now, I want to ask you a theological question. You bright and budding young theologians and, and uh, theologians that of whatever age, for all of us. Here's a theological question. Here, Paul is clearly blaming Satan for his failure to get back to see the Thessalonians. For his inability to return. He's saying, this guy is roadblocking me. He's clearly putting the blame right in Satan's lap. Now, here's the question. Was Satan responsible or was God? Be careful how you answer. It's a trick question to some degree. Because you see, it's not, again, as often many things in Scripture are. It's not either or, it's both and. Both are involved. Both have a stake. Both have a plan. You remember Pharaoh? You know what the scripture says? The scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The same Bible that said that also said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Which is it? It's both. God is sovereign; man is responsible. Here, those those important twin truths are come into play again. Where else do we see this? Look at Acts chapter two, verses twenty-two through twenty-three. Here's Peter talking on the day of Pentecost, preaching, and he says, "Men of Israel, hear these words." Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And then he says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what put Jesus on the cross? The predetermined, eternal plan and sovereignty of God. But also, the willful, pernicious, evil acts of wicked men nailed him to the cross. You see, it's both and. And my friends, that has to be true. Satan does have his part to play. But God still retains his supreme and ultimate sovereignty. And if that's not true, then there's no way that Romans eight twenty eight that we all love so much can be true. Otherwise, how can we know that all things work together for good, including afflictions and, and attacks and assault? All of that's included in the all things. All things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. By the way, application-wise, beware. Be on your guard. Beware of giving Satan too little regard or of giving him too much credit. What do I mean by that? It's dangerous to give him too little regard to think, oh, there's no boogeyman out there. There's no spiritual, malevolent power that actually can influence the things in this world? That's just a fantasy. That's a fairy tale. I don't need to regard that. I'm in Christ. I don't need to worry about his schemes and devices. Paul and Peter were concerned about it. They knew they were opposed, and you need to know that you are too. And so am I. And pray. What does Jesus say? Pray for deliverance, what in the Lord's prayer, from the evil one. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. But on the other hand, don't give him too much credit either. He is ultimately a defeated foe. He is not going to win. This is Jesus' game. He will be the victor. Satan has already had his head crushed. He just doesn't, hasn't given up yet. But the outcome is certain. But so what, I, what I'm saying here is this. Don't give him too much credit. Sometimes Christians go around saying, well, you know, Satan made me do this or Satan influenced me I, as, as, if, as if kind of a Flip Wilson thing. The devil made me do it. As if somehow Satan, everything that happens in their life is the fault of Satan. No. My friend, the world and your flesh and mine are quite able to cause us to really sabotage things very badly for us and others without any help from the prince of darkness. Do you understand that? Your heart is so sinful and so is mine that, that Satan doesn't usually have to bother with me. He usually goes after the Martin Luthers of the world and after people that are making a real impact in the kingdom of darkness. He's got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't have to worry about the poor little joke writers of the world. Not, I don't probably throw spitballs at his kingdom. But you see, we don't want to give him too much credit either. Your own flesh, your own sinfulness in the world a lot of we don't need to have to be writing him into every story now paul had a choice to make he kept waiting he kept longing and he wanted to go back but finally he says man i gotta make a plan b i gotta make a plan b finally paul's present to them look at verses three one through five therefore we could bear it no longer we're willing to be left behind in Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother and our co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we were destined for this for when we were with you we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know for this reason when I could bear it no longer I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, what's going on here? In order to demonstrate his love for the Thessalonians, Paul decides since he can't get there to do it in person, he's going to send his best to them. Paul decides, I'm going to send them Timothy. Now, why was Timothy sent? He was sent on a nurturing and fact-finding mission. That's what, we, that's what we read in those verses. He was there to encourage them in their faith, to stabilize them in their faith. Secondly, he was there to remind them that suffering was part of the game. It was unavoidable. It's not something you are going to get to clap out of, as I said last week. Acts 14, 22 says this, Strengthening the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's the, that's the normal course of things. That's what honest discipleship tells people. I remember a guy that discipled was, was kind of the disciple of my discipler. And he used to tell a lot of times people he was witnessing to that, by the way, if you think coming to Christ is going to solve all your problems and get, get you on easy street, you know, go somewhere else. If you follow Christ, you're going to suffer. He'd lay it out there. Strangely, it made them some ways more interested. But see, Paul was telling them that. And he was sending, he was sending Timothy to let them and make sure they understood that. But he also wanted them to bring back news of how they were doing. Now, Here's the really focus I want to leave this on. So he sends Timothy for this uh, purpose. But do you understand what that cost Paul to do that? Do you understand what that cost the Apostle Paul to send his best and brightest? Paul made a profound sacrifice for those he loved. How so? For one, it meant that Paul would be left alone by himself in a pagan city of Athens. You know, the scriptures tell us that a strand of two cords is not easily broken. In other words, it's better to have more than one when you're facing enemies, when you're on a task. That's why I usually don't send out solo missionaries. They go in teams or in couples. Paul practiced that generally, and yet here he is in probably the most wicked, one of the most wicked cities of the ancient world, and he 's alone. But he loved them that much. He was willing to let Timothy go. And secondly, another aspect of his sacrifice was given in how he regarded Timothy. He called him his true child of the faith. He says, "Man, this guy is special. This is not some ordinary Joe." This guy is amazingly impactful in my life and in my ministry. Listen to how Paul regarded him in Philippians when he was talking to the Philippians about this same guy, Timothy. Listen to what he says. He says, for I have no one like him. He's unique. He's unique. Who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy is proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And yet, Paul is so consumed with love for the Thessalonians. He's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what a drag this is going to create on his ministry. He's giving them In sending Timothy, Paul was not just sending someone, he was losing someone precious to him. It is as if he thought and stopped and paused and said, God, Father, what could, how could I demonstrate to them? How could I show my Thessalonian brothers and sisters how much I love them? I know, I'll send them Timothy. I'll send them Timothy. He chose what he could least afford to lose and he sent him. Do you recognize that familiar pattern? Have you ever heard of someone doing that? Have you ever heard of the greatest example of the one who did that? It's recorded in a book, in a, in a book of this big book, the Bible, called the Gospel of John in the third chapter in the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life my friend that was paul's and that is god's love language is it yours is it mine amen let's pray father lord your love language was spoken in word, in your everlasting gospel, and it's spoken in the elements that are before us today on the table that we call the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for giving heaven's best for us who deserved it least. And yet, Father, because of him and because of his bloodshed shed for sinners, Who believe in Him, we have now had our robes dipped in that blood and washed white as snow. And we will be presented faultless before your presence in that day with exceeding joy. Thank you that Jesus is going to be there to introduce us to you, Father. And He's going to stay there with me. Father, will you now strengthen us through this sacrament? Lord, your word has been proclaimed, but proclaim your truth in these elements. and Remind us again of that love that will never let us go and that sent heaven's best. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.